we're looking at this, uh, this spiral we talked about of the chaos and violence increasing in the earth, starting with the Cain and Abel narrative, moving through the flood, and what God's doing there is a kind of new creation moment. And then Tower of Babel and what's happening there and kind of what the theological significance is that then takes us into Abraham. And especially, I kind of want to think about the category of election with him. Um, so there are Christians, lots of Christians, you know, of the Reformed persuasion who understand the notion of election as a kind of, uh, you've been chosen for salvation. And um, I want to say that I think a better way of understanding the category of election in Scripture is through being chosen for a vocation, for a certain kind of work or job, okay? So... Um, if you're interested in where people get that idea, I had my husband do some homework for me. So I said, I know there's lots of verses. I, I know what um, the Calvinists are looking at in Romans, but I'm not sure what they're looking at in Genesis that he dug this up. If you're interested, it's Genesis 18, 17 through 19, where God is um, saying, I, I chose Abraham. I chose him and I decided to partner with him and do this with his family. So. Um, but I want to talk about what that choosing is about. Is it about salvation or is it about a, a kind of work that he's been asked to do? Okay, so I want to get there and say that um, originally we see something like an election happening in Eden of Adam and Eve. They are given a certain sort of responsibility. Um, they are given a special task in the garden among all the other creatures, right? Um and we talked about how that task is oriented towards a telos, um, that notion that the world itself is made good, but not yet perfect. It's made to develop towards this trajectory of God's glory filling the earth. But God's will is to partner with humanity to work towards the kind of expulsion of chaos from the creation, the right ordering of things. Okay, so of course they say no to that task. Um, they choose an alternate kind of agenda and then uh, we talked about John Mark Hicks's category of uh, the tumble into sin, which is this kind of, it does, it's not like you start out perfect and then you fall into utter depravity. It's more like the way sin works, and I would say the way, interestingly, the way kind of sanctification works as well, is more like a process of increasing, either going upwards or downwards, right? Um, in sin, you can spiral downwards. In sanctification, you can, get, you can continue to get more holy. Okay, so um, what we see from Genesis 3 to 11 is this picture of humanity sort of degenerating into broken, depraved images of who God created them to be. So I'm not going to spend too much time with the passages on the, the Cain and Abel story. I do want to just point out a few things there that I think are important. Um, first of all, it's interesting that Eve says when she, when she has Cain, she says, I have gained a son with the help of the Lord. Um, I think we see here there's this kind of, they've been expelled from the garden, but there's this affirmation that God is still with them. With the help of the Lord, I have gained a son. <coughs> um, the mission or goal is still active, and the presence of God is still active in the creation, even though they've been expelled from the garden. So, um, and I think this reminds us that when we, when we have children or when we create the conditions of life in the world, um, that we are partnering with God, okay? Even, even in the condition where we, 
we've fallen into sin. Now, when Cain kills Abel, we don't have a long description of the murder. We have a long description, a longer description of his conversation with God. Um, And when Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? The implicit answer is what? Yes, that's actually the case. You are. You're supposed to keep and guard. That was your vocation, but you said no to it and you destroyed. It's also interesting that um, I think we see a kind of reiteration of the curse that Adam and Eve brought on because God says, now because of you, the ground is cursed. The, the ground will fight back. You, won't, you know, This is a guy who's a farmer. You, you'll no longer be able to till the soil. It's going to fight back. So it sounds like what he had already told to his father, right? Adam, he said, now the ground is cursed. You're going to, it will fight back with thorns. Um, but then Cain is marked. So Cain says, oh, woe is me. Who, someone will kill me. I'll never have a place to settle down. And God says, no, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to give you this marking. It's this mysterious thing, right? Um, but I think what we can hear there is that God doesn't give up on Cain. There's a kind of justice that he, that God's interested in, but also mercy. Okay, so um, the next big kind of scene we have um, is the, the story of Noah. Now, um, a couple of things I want to highlight there, and then we will look at some, some specific verses. But in Genesis 5.29, uh, his father says, I'm going to name this child Noah. This person will bring us rest from our toil. So remember, we talked about the category of toil. Um, the word there means something like, the sense of um, anxiety, um, the, the kind of meaninglessness of life, right? The, this is this sense that's really captured in Ecclesiastes. Um, so there's this association of Noah being, a, you know, kind of a means of rest from that, okay? But there's also this picture of the, the world itself is really this depraved, degenerate place. Um, violence fills the earth. So let's look at, um, let's look at Genesis 6. Five through seven. I'll give you a second to find that if you'd like to. Okay, will someone read that for us? Six, five through seven. I got it. Thank you. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Thank you. So um, I'm actually kind of excited that your version says regret, because that helps me make the point that I want to make. Um, You're welcome at one Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, okay, so I, this isn't original to me. John Mark Hicks is the one who taught me this. He says that word that's often translated as regret can actually be translated about 10 different ways. I don't know if you've, you know, you're like, I don't study this stuff. I study Hebrew. Yeah, I do do Greek, yeah. Uh, You speak the gods, (laughs) the gods language. Um, So this word can be translated about 10 different ways. And John Mark argues that regret is actually not a great way to understand it. because what we see here is a picture of God grieving, God being feeling sorrow and grief over the state of humankind. Not, I should never have done this, but I had this, this uh, way of life I had offered these people and they have said no to it and look what they've done to the good creation, right? 
So I think what we can hear here is, um, or what we can receive here is a picture of God looking at a world filled with violence and mourning over it and deciding to uncreate in order to recreate, okay? Not to give up on it, not to say I should never have done this in the first place, but I'm going to pursue this mode of recreation. Um, so starting in, let's see, Genesis 8, 15. Let's look over there. Because um, there's so much of this we could dig into, but I just want to highlight a few things. Um, well, first of all, I do want to just draw attention because I think it's, it's really interesting how this imagery comes up later. And we all know the story of, you know, Noah's on the ark with his family. There's the floodwaters are filling the earth. He sends out the birds, right, to see if there's any kind of dry land yet. Um, do you remember that? Okay, so there's a raven first. What's the second one? Dove. The dove. Do you remember where the dove shows up in the New Testament? Oh, at the baptism, right? Um, if you're someone who's been reading and living with these stories all your life, that's not that symbol of the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove is not going to be lost on you. That is a moment of new creation as well, okay, over the waters, interestingly, of baptism. Um, and that's actually, the early Christians used that imagery quite a lot. I mean, the flood was a, a baptism story for them, which is, I think is really interesting. Um, so what we have is, um, oh, I also want to mention, remember that Genesis 1 through 11 is essentially Israel's way of saying, this is our story over against the kind of stories that um, other cultures are telling, right? So we had talked about, for example, um, the story, the, the competing creation myth, the, Babylon, you know, the Babylonian myth about Marduk. So um, here I think there's one way to think about this is over against the epic of anyone? I know, I know Sandy knows this. Gilgamesh, thank you. Yeah. So um, the epic of Gilgamesh is an alternate flood story. And it's about um, the gods deciding to flood the earth because they are tired of humanity. Uh, humanity's annoying them. They're disturbing them from their rest. Humanity's gotten too noisy and is disturbing the gods from their rest. Very different picture of God, right? Our God is a God who cares, who is looking at what's happening to creation and is troubled by it. Very different than gods who just want to be left alone and want creation to leave them alone, right? Um, and then uh, those gods were trying to destroy the world and Gilgamesh tricked them into kind of, he found a way around the destruction Noah is an Im invited into God's purposes for recreation. Okay, so um, interestingly, what we see in Genesis 8, okay, so starting in 15, uh, we see Noah and his family emerging from the ark, and we hear God telling him to be fruitful and multiply, okay? Go out and, and have your family fill the world, and then there's all the, there's these birds and beasts that come with them, right? <laughs> And God is saying, uh, you know, this is, this is my task for you. I want you to be fruitful and multiply, just like we were told in Eden, right? Adam and Eve were told this. So let's look at chapter 9. Starting in verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you shall rest on every animal. So again, there's this kind of lord, lordship over the animals, right, being repeated. Okay, so every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Again, there's this kind of repetition of that language from uh, the, the Garden of Eden story. 
the original creation story. There's, this, there's some new stuff being added, though. Um, in verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed. Those are kind of new like legal standards that are being put in place. Um, and then, interestingly, in verse 8, God says to Noah and to his sons with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, etc., etc. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all generations. I have set my bow in the clouds. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Okay, so um, what I found, I, I learned this recently and I thought it was really interesting that um, in this ancient Near Eastern culture, this kind of... Uh, kind of a sign or token of a covenant was a common thing. Usually what was, you know, the context for this would be there is some kind of powerful person, let's say a kind of lord and a vassal. We think of this in medieval terms. We might kind of understand it. Someone who is poor but needs the protection of this powerful person, right? Um, they might make a kind of agreement, like I'm going to serve you. I'll give you some part of my, you know, what I glean from my lands. I'll serve you if there's some sort of armed conflict. And in return, I have your protection, right? Interestingly, the person who, uh, the, the less powerful person was the one responsible for keeping up with the sign of that covenant. So the person in power might give that person, let's say, like a ring or a, something that he couldn't have any other way. Um, but in this story, God, clearly the person in power, right, is the one who keeps the sign. I will set my sign in the clouds. I'm going to do this for you. I'm the one who's going to assure that this is going to happen. Um, I just, I find that really interesting. Again, it says a lot about God's character, this God's character, over against these kind of other images of power and powerful people in this world, right? Okay, so... Um, what I would argue is that Noah is elected as well. Um, he's being given a similar vocation that Adam was given. This is a new creation moment. It's a new opportunity to start over and do things right this time. Um, so we have similar language to Genesis 1, but it's tweaked in Genesis 9. <coughs> Noah is supposed to get things back on track. Um, but of course we know the story, he doesn't do that, right? Things go awry. And similarly, you know, I think John Mark points this out in the chapters that you, you might have read for today. Um, even you have Adam and Eve sinning in a garden. You have Noah and his vineyard and things go wrong there. So there's this mirroring of, of this is the, the way that humans do this. We tend to make a mess of it. Okay, so then um, we have, what we have next is the, the Tower of Babel. So we get to Genesis 11:4. So let's flip over there. Okay, so I'll start in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came up... I won't read all of this. Let's hop down to verse 4. They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. That's really important. Let us make a name for ourselves. Um, otherwise we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Okay, so what's happening here... Um, you know, the first thing Noah does when he leaves the ark is build uh, an altar to God and, and to worship. That's the human purpose. The human worship is to play this priestly role in the, in the creation, um, to teach the created world to worship, to order it rightly. And we ourselves are supposed to be building 
altars to God, not to ourselves. What we see here is the people want to build something to make their own names great, right? They want to make a name for themselves. So, um, you know, in terms of like what is the actual tower they're, they're building, uh, people started using the sort of mortar they're talking about here in the story around 3500 BC. <clears throat> this is a time when people started building these monuments that are called ziggurats, in, in case you're interested in this. Um, they're not just towers, they're actually considered temples with the idea that the gods, as they would pass from heaven and earth, might stop and rest at these places. So I, I find this just kind of, you know, this, there's this really rich language here of, if we think about the things we've been talking about all along here, God says, I created the world as my resting place. I fill the cosmos. I've put you here to image me. And so we have this really interesting inversion. It's like they're so close to doing the right thing, but they're doing it for themselves rather than for God, right? Um, so this is about empire building. The, you know, someone, a great, a great king of one of these empires could stand up atop of these towers and feel themselves in touch with the gods and kind of assume the posture of a god. Uh, so um, this is where um, we see God saying, in order to protect them from themselves, I'm going to confuse their languages. I'm going to keep them from doing this because there's, there's no limit to what they'll accomplish if they can all work together. So um, there's an ironic kind of grace in the confusion of their languages and the inability to communicate with each other. Um, similar, I would think, in some ways to the expulsion from Eden. Like if they stay there forever, eat of the tree of life, they're going to go on forever like this. We have to protect them from themselves. Let's send them out of the garden. Um, so I think what this story is fundamentally about is idolatry, saying to God, we're not partners anymore. Uh, it's an assertion of autonomy and ego, and it's couched in the context of empire, empire building. Uh, so the, the power we have to create, the, this power for good, is also a power for destruction and evil. So this finally brings us to Genesis 12, where all of this has kind of been building, okay? Um, so let's look at Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, and will someone read those for us? Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I'll show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all the people of the earth will be blessed you. Thank you. Okay, so we're, we're used to this language at this point, right? There's this blessing, all people of their filling the earth, right? There's this language repeated of the same election of Adam, of Noah, and now Abraham as a kind of new Adam, right? Um, so what is at risk in Adam and Noah is interestingly, we hear that secured through Abraham by this language which is that is God is the one who's going to do this. So think about um, when he speaks to Adam and Eve, he says, be fruitful and multiply. Here he says, I am going to make you fruitful. I am going to increase your, your numbers. I am going to do this. I'm going to make sure that the world is all peoples of the world are blessed through your family. Uh, it doesn't mean this isn't a relational kind of uh, moment. It's not that he's not inviting uh, Abraham into partnership. He certainly is. We'll see how that plays out. But there's an assurance here. I think in some ways it's a kind of echoing of God saying, I'm the one hanging up the sign, right? It's saying here, I'm the one that's going to make sure this is successful and that this happens. 
are, is, is this covenant that he's making with Abraham, how does it relate? I mean, I'm sure what you said, but I'm thinking of, of Noah telling them what to do and stuff like that. So does, does it work that when he makes a new covenant, the old co covenant is completed because he's making a new covenant? Or is that one still in play? <coughs> I'd be interested to hear what Mark would say on that. But I am, I, I think it's a, I think what we can hear is that there's a kind of building in the story, right? There's a crescendo kind of happening with where God is taking this. Because um, it, it could look like, I mean, if you're just looking at this from a limited historical perspective, God keeps trying things that aren't working, right? God tried with Adam and it didn't work out. Tried with Noah, it didn't work out. But the way Paul looks at this, when he's looking back, you know, when by the time he's talking about this, um, in the New Testament is he says something like these are teaching moments God is using like what good was the law well it did a lot of good one thing we learned from it though is that we needed the Messiah we needed our Savior so I think we could see God showing us what's not going to work right at this point so pursuing this new way with Noah because it'd be easy for us to say why didn't God just wipe out all those evil people and start out with a good person who can make good choices. And it's like, well, it's not going to happen. It's not going to work. We're too depraved. So I would say the covenant he made with Noah is still good, but now it's being um, kind of focused through Abraham's family. Um, and it's, it's being elaborated upon. It's being kind of, these kind of new layers are being added to it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Um, Okay, so what I would say, is, uh, things I want to draw out here. Uh, one, the blessing or the goal of this is not exclusive to Israel. Um, the, the goal of it, the telos, is to include all people. Um, Abraham's election, him being chosen, uh, it's true that it doesn't have to do with him being necessarily that much better than anyone else. Uh, now, he is a faithful person. He's a righteous person, but he's human. He makes lots of mistakes. I mean, as we follow his story, we see the mistakes that he makes. Um, but we see God saying, I'm going to live in intimacy with you and partner with you for this purpose, to bless all peoples of the earth. Um, and then it's interesting because I think, you know, John Mark makes the argument that Israel is supposed to be like a new Eden, a new place where we can see what it looks like for people to live in shalom with God. Um, Deuteronomy, there's passages in Deuteronomy that talk about how the nations are supposed to pass by and see what's happening in Israel and see that they live with God, right, that they, they partner with God. Um, the repeated language here of be fruitful and multiply should be kind of, at this point, we should be really thinking there's something important happening here. Interesting that this comes up in Acts, the Great Commission, and the language of going into all the world. We see that in Romans 4.13 as well. This is still God's purpose for the creation, is that we're supposed to go into the world, we're supposed to increase um, the conditions of praise and glory and honor to God, right? So um, kind of anticipating where this is going to go, what we see is God guaranteeing its success, and then when Israel fails, God becomes Israel. So that's where we're headed. Um, and then also it's interesting that Jesus is named as the elect one, the one who's actually going to fulfill this vocation, right? So there's a lot there. I'll stop for now and see what Mark would like to add. And if we have time for questions, we can certainly get to them.
Yes, let's just open this up to questions as I, as I run through some of these things that I want to say, because otherwise we won't have any questions. I didn't mean now, Steve, but go ahead and ask your question. <laughs> uh, one of the things that's interesting to me is, is Abraham, as he goes throughout the land, he builds altars. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of that, almost that going to the world and the circular expansion of the kingdom of God or the God's presence in the chaos. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, and it's really interesting when it's juxtaposed, like Tower of Babel happens, they've built an altar to themselves, God calls Abraham, he leaves, and the first thing he does is build an altar to God. And then, yeah, th that's like this continual thing that happens. They have these moments of like, where they think they've encountered God in a special way and they build an altar there. And it's like God's presence, like the, the temple is kind of spreading, mm -hmm. right? And it shows what is the difference between Abraham and others and why God chose him. Um, Abraham, despite his mistakes, he seems to always have God first. And so he's doing things like making these altars. And there really was a difference. He was the one you know, who passed on at least some of this good stuff to his kids that led to, uh, uh, to Israel. Um, yeah, I was thinking when you're talking about the ziggurats, and the people of Babel basically uh, trying to create this new thing. So what happens is God has made us in his image so that we are to be like God. What they did in Babylon was to make the gods in their image so that the gods were, uh, so that Marduk is this violent God who wants to take over the world and be the head thing, which is exactly what Babylon was doing. And it reminds us that we either make up worldviews to suit what we want to be and those worst aspects of us, or we actually list, try to listen to God and uh, hear the worldview that gives us something that honestly it doesn't uh, work with our natural tendencies and inclinations, that it's meant to bless others rather than bless ourselves. So this image of God uh, uh, being given to us or God, our image being uh, painted on God is kind of an interesting interesting thing in my mind. Okay, I, one of the things I want to uh, ask, and I'm not sure that I have a good answer, is uh, if you're reading John Mark's book, he says that God really does become sorry that he had made human beings. The violence that happened, you know, beginning with, well, it wasn't violence with Adam and Eve, but then with Cain, and just continued and got worse and worse, God finally says, done with this. Isn't that fascinating that God's plan, as you said, didn't work? And I had a student just the other day and said, well, why did God do this stuff if it wasn't going to work? You like that question? In which I said, whoa, look at the time. Uh, class is over. Uh, really good uh, question. You guys have any good ideas? You have to deal with this. You're a theologian. Why, why do all this? And do you think God really changed his mind? Because most conservative Christians, they don't like that. They want an absolute sovereign God that everything that happens is because God planned it to happen that way. And what she's suggesting is kind of a heresy <laughs> that says God can change his mind. And it's, it's, what, it's a little bit of what uh, theologians call open theism, 
And that is that God doesn't necessarily have everything worked out. He has the end in mind, what it's going to be, but he works with us as we make stupid decisions all the way through. What, what do you think? I like that a lot. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense to me because, I mean, that stuff happens. Yeah. And so for me to expect that God wanted all these bad things to happen is, is really troublesome on my mind and soul. And so I, I like the concept that God is living in this time thing with us. God's this infinite being that knows everything that is possible to be known. But what if in our concept of reality, you know, like time isn't like this infinite line that goes on forever and like we can see past where we are now. Yeah. But what if God is living in it with us? God is God and like there's no way we could understand the way that God would think, right? Yeah. So of course, if God says something's gonna happen then it's going to happen. Because That's right. This, this divine being can make that happen. That's right. But, it's, yeah, go ahead. I don't know, I just love the concept of like, what if God is does know everything that's possible to be known, but what if my concept that I grew up with, thinking about time, uh, what if future isn't there, right? Yeah. yeah. What, what, if it, what, yeah. If, what if it's not back to the future, you can't <laughs> hop in the flux capacitor, you know, and like go back. Like, what if it's not yeah. like that? Yeah. Thoroughgoing open theists argue that God knows where he wants to go. He can make it happen that way. He can raise up people. He can occasionally just interfere and make Pharaoh's heart hard or whatever he needs to do to get where he wants to go. But that he doesn't, this is heretical, he doesn't actually know what's going to happen in the future because it's future. Okay, others would just say, no, he knows what's going to happen, but he works with our, um, with our free will and kind of adjusts as we go. You, you want to talk about that at all? I would just say what, what keeps it from being a heresy is, um, <laughs> just to go on record, is that, you know, is that uh, an open theist still thinks God maintains control, uh, that God decides to kind of, self-limit, so to speak, in order to allow us the real kind of dignity of making free choices and, and like partnering with God in a real way. But God is still in control of the whole thing. And, th and I think that's what you're talking about. So what really becomes heretical is when you say God is in time, God's limited to time, God can't control the way things go, right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I've always considered like anyone who's a parent, who's a toddler, when they start to walk, you know they're going to fall down. It's a foregone conclusion. It's part of the process. You try to make things safe as possible and let them take their path, but you let them fall. Anyway, so you know it, but you don't interfere in it because you know ultimately it leads to the ultimate goal. I think that's exactly right. And uh, there are things that you really do get to control the end of, but you just have to decide, you know, how much am I going to let them do what they want? You know, um, I will let my children experience natural consequences unless <laughs> it's going to be horrible for them and ruin their life or end their life or whatever. And then I will step in. And that's, that's, the, only, that's the best analogy I know. So I appreciate that. Yes? Sort of along those lines, uh, you know, somebody mentioned a toddler, but even as, as children get older, you may tell them, that, don't do this. 
and if it's not going to kill them or something, that's right. You let them do it, and they're going to learn better that's from right. having to bear the consequences. And you've already seen it in prior generations in Genesis, but you know, God certainly knew what was going to happen. That's right. Just, yeah. They'll learn better if they experience it rather than their dad or somebody tells them not to. Yeah, I think that's right. Steve? I don't even know if it's, I mean, the children analogy is really good, but it's also a relationship. I mean, relationships are messy. Yeah. And you can't just eliminate the freedom of the other person and have a relationship. This is something that that's right. has the interaction between two individuals. Yeah, yeah. And this same thing then comes down to a personal level as well, right? Um, I, I, I personally cannot believe that God decided beforehand that certain people were going to be saved and others were not. And so they were the elect. And you made reference to that. And the fact is, I'll argue strongly, is that we are the elect because Jesus was the elect and we're in Christ. And so we have been chosen. Israel was chosen. That's the word elect. I don't, the word elect doesn't seem to uh, work as well for me. Israel was chosen to do this thing, which was to bring all people uh, into God's glory and under God's uh, uh, wishes uh, for the good of everyone rather than for the good of just some. And that's part of our uh, nationalistic, imp well, not a, our individualist impulses is that we're always, you know, looking after our, uh, ourselves. But that uh, election is God's choosing of a people, Israel, uh, to, to spread the word about him to the nations. And that is still who we are. We are still Israel. I'm, I'm going to push this through this next few weeks. What happened on Pentecost is that a remnant of Israel became followers of uh, the, the Messiah. And so it continued to be Israel. And then as Luke says, and as Paul says, and other New Testament writers say, and so the gospel went to the Jew first, and then to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were always called to say, come join us. We worship the God of Israel. We follow the um, the Jewish, the Israelite Messiah, and that is who we are. Join us in this. God has always had these plans for us. The theology is precisely what it was from the creation. A loving God who wants relationship with people. And so we are the new Israel. And Paul can even talk about a Gentile group, a group that's mostly Gentiles in, uh, in Galatia, and says, the, it, we are the Israel of God. Uh, and so, I don't want to push that to the extent that we become, you know, uh, pro-Israel politically or whatever. Don't even want to talk about that issue. We're not talking about that. But we are talking about, if we do not have that fundamentally Jewish-Israelite theology, then uh, we're not going to be very good Christians. Christian means what? Followers of Christ means what? Messiah. It's really unfortunate that the word church is one that doesn't tell us that we are Israel.
but in fact, it's the word ecclesia was the same word, was the same meaning as synagogue, uh, the synagogue. We are simply the synagogue that follows the Messiah rather than the synagogues that chose not to follow the Messiah. And the word Christ is the same way. Doesn't look to us very Jewish, but in fact, it means Messiah, which is extremely Jewish. The whole world is saved by the Jewish Messiah. This is who we are. We're, you know, honorary Jews. We don't have to become ethnic Jews. And so fortunately, we don't have the food laws. And we don't have the Sabbath and the other day's law, day laws. Although there's something in all of that as well we need to listen to. And we don't have the circumcision thing. But we have been accepted into the people of God. Abraham was told, all nations in the earth will be blessed through you. Uh, so I'll, I'll hit this some more this semester. Uh, this, yeah, this semester. So, <laughs> students, I'm always in a semester mode. All right, until December, and then I won't have any idea what day it is or even what month it is in retirement. So that's that's kind of exciting. Uh, I guess the last thing that I would say here is the time finally came. All right, God. After however it happened, whether He says, "Well, I'll try this," no, that didn't work. I'll try this. No, that didn't work. I'll try Israel. That didn't work. Okay, I'll bring David as this great king. That didn't work. Uh, and what he discovered or what he planned from the beginning, however you want to say this, is that sin is too strong. These folks can't do it. I gave them a wonderful law that really tells them how to be like me. God never threw out the law. We'll talk about that some more as well. But I gave them these wonderful guidelines, rules to live by. And as it turns out, they can't do it. They need help. And so to help them get rid of all that sin in the past, Jesus' death. But that still doesn't help them in the, well, it helps them in the future. But it does not do away with this problem of sin and so I'm going to give them my spirit to give them a little boost, if they'll take it. Well, a big boost, all right? But we still have our free will. But now we've got, we've got help. This is a horrible analogy, but somebody once said it's like power steering. <laughs> no, that's... You younger ones don't even know what I'm talking about. What would, what would not be like power steering? Anyhow, uh... We have available to us an incredibly strong power, finally, to put all that stuff behind us. We really can do better than old Israel did, as the new Israel, for whom the Messiah came, and who, just as the prophet said he would do, poured out his spirit on us to allow us to be what God always was. Okay, I went a little long. Questions, comments? Well, then we're done. Go and have a great week.